Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Hey everyone, I'm Nikki Young and this is Serial Mapper, an international true crime podcast. A woman scorned, left by her breadwinning attorney husband for a much younger woman. Crazy battles in the court, manipulation, mind games, and ultimately murder. The story of Betty Broderick is famous for all of the wrong reasons, with many women feeling like she was somehow justified in her actions. So did her ex-husband push her over the edge, or was this sort of craziness hiding within Betty all along? Tonight, we're talking about the real-life story behind season two of the Netflix show Dirty John. Tonight's episode is sponsored by Dorsey Health, who provides the finest quality CBD products at affordable pricing. CBD has long been used to treat things like anxiety, chronic pain, and insomnia, but with so many different companies on the market, it can be difficult choosing the best one that provides the highest quality at a reasonable price. All of Dorsey Health CBD products are derived from organically grown hemp from farms in Kentucky and Colorado, and it's free of solvents, pesticides, metals, and unnatural substances. Their high standards of quality are applied to each product delivery system in the form of a topical roll-on, tincture oral suspension, and an oral supplement. For the next 14 days, you can use the code NAPPER at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Visit DorseyHealth.com and use code NAPPER at checkout for 15% off your purchase. Get a premium product without the premium pricing from other brands at DorseyHealth.com. I also have their link in my show notes. Okay, let's jump in. And I guess maybe I should start off by saying happy belated Valentine's Day. I mean, I guess this is sort of like the anti-Valentine's story. I don't know. We're going to start right at the beginning, before all of the chaos and the drama, because none of this just happened overnight. It was a long process that built up over years and years until it all exploded. Elizabeth Ann Biseglia, who went by the name Betty, was born on November 7, 1947, into a large Catholic family. She grew up in East Chester, New York, and was one of six children born to her Italian father, Frank Biseglia, who was a World War II Air Force veteran and CEO of a plastering firm and her Irish-American mother, Marita Biseglia. 
Betty was raised in a fairly affluent upper middle class family and the pressure was on her to succeed. And when I say succeed, I mean her parents wanted her to marry well and they taught her that her role in life was to become a good wife and a good mother. She grew up believing that the biggest achievement and most important thing that she could ever do in life was to be an ideal wife and a mom. Betty attended and later graduated from the College of Mount St. Vincent, which was a small Catholic women's college in Riverdale, New York. When she was just 17 years old, she traveled to see a football game at the University of Notre Dame in 1965. It was there that she met Daniel Broderick III, a.k.a. Dan, then a Notre Dame senior. Dan, who was an undergraduate at the time, introduced himself to Betty at the party by writing on a napkin, Daniel T. Broderick III, MDA. When Betty asked him what MDA meant, his response was medical doctor, almost. He was a pre-med student at the time. They then began dating and not long after became engaged. Dan was born in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and he was the eldest son of a very large Catholic family. He had a very similar upbringing as Betty, born to very religious parents who wanted him to become very successful, marry a young, beautiful wife, and begin his own traditional Catholic family. The couple were married on April 12, 1969, at the Immaculate Conception Church in East Chester in a very lavish ceremony that was planned by Betty's mother. Now, at the wedding, Dan refused to wear this rented cutaway tuxedo, opting instead for his own double-breasted blue pinstripe suit and a flowered tie. Aside from clothing, Betty revealed that her parents approved of Dan and would later say, After all, I was marrying a doctor. What else does any mother want? He was 99% already a doctor, and he was from a Catholic family, and he wasn't from a divorced family. The pair honeymooned on a Caribbean cruise, and apparently the honeymoon went very well because Betty returned from her honeymoon pregnant with her first child, her daughter Kim, who was born in 1970. Betty continued to work right until the day before she gave birth. She just sort of felt like she had to. Even though Betty and Dan came from wealthy families, money was really tight. They were starting this family and Dan was still in school, so Betty had to financially support the family. And even though she had to balance work and being a mother, somehow she was always able to pull it off. She was everything you could possibly imagine an idyllic mother would be, and she absolutely thrived on it. She went on to give birth to four more children, a daughter called Lee, two sons named Daniel and Rhett, and a little baby boy who ended up dying two days after birth. Betty had also suffered a few miscarriages in between and had become pregnant one more time after Rhett was born in 1980. But after the doctor warned that her varicose veins and some other complications endangered her life, she decided to have an abortion and the surgery that would ensure she would not be able to get pregnant again. With four babies to care for and before Dan ever became the successful attorney he would be known to be, the couple was virtually destitute. They were living on food stamps, 
moving in and out of dormitories and apartments, and Betty really stepped up to support the family, knowing that one day, once Dan finished school and found a job, she could breathe a little and focus more time and effort on just taking care of the family, being a wife, being a mom. At one point in time, Betty even resorted to selling Tupperware door-to-door, literally in the cold of winter going door-to-door selling this Tupperware, all while holding her babies in her hands. Now, after Kim's birth and after Dan completed his medical degree, Dan announced that he didn't want to proceed with his medical training and that he intended to combine it with a law degree. So... He enrolled at Harvard Law School, while Betty continued to work nonstop to support his studies. She just supported him in whatever he wanted to do. She was never too proud to work, and she knew that this is what she had to do for her family. It was said that Betty never really saw herself as an individual. She always saw herself as one half of the family that she had made with Dan. They were a team working together towards this dream future. I think it's important to mention this before we go any further because Betty had really put all of her eggs in this one basket, so to speak. This was it. This was the intention of her life in its entirety, what she was always told she was meant to do and pretty much what she lived for. In 1973, after Dan had graduated from Harvard Law School, The family moved to the La Jolla area of San Diego, where Dan eventually became a success as a medical malpractice attorney. Unfortunately, things were still really difficult at the time. Betty would say, I went from being accomplished, well-connected, and free to being isolated from family and friends, and trapped with two children for whom I was 100% responsible. Dan's first job at the law firm didn't bring in a ton of money, so initially they still struggled financially, but Betty urged Dan to go into practice for himself, and he did, which was a great decision. Dan quickly excelled in his own practice, enjoying a ton of success and a large paycheck to accompany it. Dan went on to win his first million-dollar case, and the Broderick family became millionaires pretty much overnight. It seemed that after years of hard work and sacrifice, the Brodericks had finally made it. Betty was especially proud that all of her own personal sacrifices were finally paying off, and she was now able to quit working, focus all of her time on her marriage and children, and live a very privileged life. Dan was a celebrity in local legal circles, and Betty, well, she spent her days shuttling her four children to and from music lessons and soccer games, planning the couple's very busy social calendar, and tending to the yard and all of the housework. They had this beautiful, expensive home that Betty had always dreamed of. They went to very lavish parties, and they were always dressed to the nines. Dan and Betty even joined a country club and some private resorts. Their children went to private schools. They had family vacations, and they actually owned a selection of very prestigious cars. On the outside, everything appeared to be picture perfect. But after the birth of their fourth and final child, cracks began to show in the marriage. 
Betty continually complained that Dan was an absent father and husband. He spent too much time working and then socializing with fellow attorneys. Betty protested that she felt like a single parent of four children, and she also noticed that his interest in her was kind of fading. Once on a family vacation, a fight erupted when he spent more time in the hotel bar than with her and the children. But arguing in general was not uncommon between the two at the time. In 1990, Betty's daughter Kim told the Los Angeles Times, Mom would get mad at Dad all the time. Once, Mom picked up the stereo and threw it at him, and she locked him out constantly. He'd come around to my window and whisper, Kim, let me in. In the early 1980s, Dan hired a young, beautiful woman by the name of Linda Kolkina. Linda was a former airline attendant who had become a receptionist in his office building, then hired personally by Dan to be his assistant. Linda was only 21 years old the year that she had met Dan. She was born to a hard-working, middle-class, laboring family in Salt Lake City, Utah. She had a high school education, and she had worked briefly for Delta Airlines, from which she was fired. After being terminated, Linda earned money as a temporary receptionist for a number of clients, including the legal office building that Dan worked in before he hired her personally. As early as October 1983, Betty suspected that Dan was having an affair with Linda, and she accused her husband of infidelity. Betty alleged that while they were at a cocktail party, she overheard her husband remark, Wow, isn't she beautiful, believing that Dan was talking about Linda. But still, Dan denied having an affair. He just told Betty that she was crazy. And Betty, well, she truly felt crazy. She had this feeling in the pit of her stomach. Like she knew that her husband was cheating, but he kept telling her that he wasn't. And her friends were reassuring her that Dan was not the kind of man to cheat on her. But subsequent events did eventually tell her otherwise. When the Brodericks vacationed in New York City that summer, Betty caught Dan calling Linda on the phone. When the family toured England, she discovered that Dan had telegraphed flowers to Linda. And according to Betty, it was also around this same time that Dan began to make comments about her age and her weight, calling her old, fat, ugly, and stupid. His attitude, according to Betty, had become one of, women are waiting in line to replace you. Meanwhile, Dan appeared to go through what Betty described as a midlife crisis, He exchanged his glasses for contact lenses, he had his hair layered, and he also had a minor plastic surgery operation to change the shape of his nose. He also bought the red Corvette. Yeah, the one you see on all of those ads and movies and stories of the midlife crisis where the guy buys the red Corvette. Yeah, he bought one. He was changing, evolving, and Betty, Betty was pretty much the same Betty that she always was. She threw herself into her children, taking them to after-school activities, participating in school events, and she kept her suspicions of the affair almost completely a secret. She felt like if he was having an affair, it was all just some phase as part of this midlife crisis he was having. It would eventually end and he'd come back to her, so it was best that nobody knew about it. That way it would be easier to pretend like it never happened. 
Back then, this was fairly common, with a successful husband stepping out on his stay-at-home wife, but of course, always returning to her at the end, and Betty assumed it would play out this way for her too. She did end up telling one of her closest friends about her suspicion. The friend told her to go into the office and make herself known. So, on Dan's 38th birthday, she dressed up and went into his office to surprise him. She brought a bottle of champagne and a dozen roses. She was going to take him out for a romantic birthday dinner. But when she arrived at the office, she found a party had already been had, and Dan and his assistant, Linda, had not returned back to the office after lunch. Betty walked around the office and peered into Linda's office to find an old picture of Dan as a teenager which to her was just one piece to confirm her suspicions. She literally waited around the office for hours to see if the pair would return, but Dan and Linda never came back. And this, well, this would break Betty. She drove home, she marched to the closet, and began ripping out all of the expensive tailor-made clothes that Dan had. Then, She piled them in the backyard and poured gasoline on the pile and lit the match. Thousands of dollars of Dan Broderick's expensive clothes went up in flames as her children cried. Yep, her children had to witness this, which I think is one of the saddest facts of all. They must have been terrified, wondering why the hell their mother was burning their father's things on the lawn. And when Dan came home that night, He actually didn't say much, except that she was crazy and had an overactive imagination. Now, the Brodericks, they moved into a rental property after some structural damage was discovered on their house in late 1984. It was all supposed to be temporary while the home was being fixed. But three months after Dan's 40th birthday, Dan moved out returning to the damaged house while Betty and the children remained at the rental home. At the time, Dan continued to deny the affair allegations and said that he just needed some space. So Betty stayed at the rental home, still hopeful that there could be a reconciliation. But it was becoming pretty apparent that this was not going to be a temporary separation. And Dan, well, he finally confessed to the affair. But he didn't really make any apologies to Betty about it. He really just wanted her to know that this separation was serious and that he was moving on. With Betty and the kids living in the rental and Dan now living in their family home alone, he pretty much lived as a single man. Now, I don't want to villainize Dan. Affairs happen, and do I think it's trashy as hell? Yeah, absolutely. He should have just gotten a divorce from Betty right from the get-go. But from many of the reports, it doesn't exactly appear that he did everything properly or righteously. Betty would say that he refused to spend time with the children and did so only when Betty forcibly dropped the kids on his doorstep. So, one day, Betty left all four children at his place without warning and said, Here, they're yours. You want to be apart from me? Well, see what it's like raising a family by yourself. The kids sat there on the doorstep, literally by themselves, until their father arrived home late 
later that night. This would come back to bite Betty in the ass later, as it would be seen as abandonment when she went to court to seek custody of the children. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes. Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, never-frozen meals that are also dietitian approved No matter how busy you are, Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day because that's half the battle, and I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code napper50 at factormeals.com slash napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. 
Dan filed for divorce and for full custody of the children. From here, things got really nasty. And again, Betty broke. She really just began to break down as a human and do some things that would only hurt her in court, but would really damage her relationship with her children. One afternoon, she stopped by the house to visit her kids, who were now living with Dan, and she happened to spot a homemade Boston cream pie on the counter, which was Dan's favorite. She learned from the housekeeper that Linda had dropped it off for Dan, so Betty proceeded to carry the pie upstairs and spread the contents across Dan's bed, which was once their bed, and all over his closet full of fine clothes. Dan arrived home later, surveyed the damage, and immediately had a restraining order issued to keep Betty off of the premise. Two days later, infuriated by the order that forbade her to step foot in what she considered her house too, she flung a bottle of wine through the window. She was lucky to not be arrested after this. Police chalked it up to just another domestic dispute amongst the rich. But Betty, she was absolutely losing her mind. And she was having a really difficult time finding legal representation for the divorce. Remember, Dan was a lawyer, and at this time, he's really well-connected and well-known in the legal community. He had friends in high places, and people didn't really want to battle it out with him in court. Dan had even been named president of the San Diego County chapter of the American Bar Association at the time. So Betty, like, she was really up against it. Betty was forced to turn to L.A. to find a lawyer to represent her. She found one in Beverly Hills by the name of Daniel Jaffe, who really had his work cut out for him. Betty, she continued to vandalize the home and verbally assault Dan in front of the kids. Despite her lawyer's pleas to stop, Betty time and time again snubbed her nose at the restraining order. She just didn't care or just couldn't stop. Once she learned that Dan had taken Linda away for a weekend trip, she entered his house and smashed a window with the bottle. And her kids, she couldn't even spend time with her kids because of all of the damage that she was doing, all of the nasty voicemails that she was leaving. Now, I'm going to play a little clip from a call that Betty was having with her son, Dan Jr. And seriously, guys, it's heartbreaking, but it's going to show you just the toxic behavior that Betty was demonstrating. Even though she loved her kids, I really do believe she loved her kids. She was overcome with so much anger that she was just so toxic in every way you can possibly be toxic. And the damage that she did to her kids is unbelievable. So have a listen to this. Some, Oh, 
hearing that kills me. Um, Dan would go on to say that he actually did want to live with his mother. Him and his brother, they were actually really close to Betty and they wanted to live with her. But she just, all of the problems that she was causing, all of the harassment and the vandalism made it impossible for her to have her kids. And Dan would tell the kids, you know, you can't live with your mom because she says bad words. So Dan, Dan Jr., he takes this literally, and that's what he's referring to in this um, phone call with Betty. Now, Betty, I mean, clearly she's she's toxic. She's doing things that she shouldn't be doing. She's leaving horrible, nasty voicemails, saying the worst things possible. But Dan, he would retaliate using the legal system. He would constantly call her into court using what's called an order to show cause. Basically, she would be hauled into court anytime she violated the restraining order, which was often. And he would record everything that she did so that he could use it against her. But really, let's be real. I mean, that was Betty's fault. Her anger was turning her into this monster and it was far from over. Betty spent Christmas of 1985 by herself. Linda and Dan had taken the children on a winter's vacation and Betty, I mean, she was bitter about it. So she broke into Dan's house, that house that she used to live in, and she ripped open every gift wrap box that was marked to Linda. And she just like left it strewn around the house. She then left a Christmas greeting that Dan would be sure to recognize as from her. She thrust a blunt object through the room's mirror, and then she left. Everything came to a head in February of 1986 when Dan somehow convinced a judge to allow him to sell the couple's former property without Betty's consent. He was somehow able to convince this judge to let him sell the family home that Betty had loved and her name was on without her ever giving her consent. This was literally the only piece of property that Betty's name was on. He was ready to move on and move forward into a new home with Linda, which meant getting rid of the old family house. Now, upon finding out that Dan had sold their marital home without her permission, Betty broke again. She drove her car into the front door of Dan's new house. Police came, and this time, they didn't shrug off the incident. Court documents stated that Dan declared that when he opened the car door to pull Betty out, she reached for a large butcher knife under the seat. He ended up restraining her, and she spent three days in the San Diego County Mental Health Hospital in Hillcrest. He literally had her sent to the mental institution, which I'm not arguing that she did or didn't need at this point. Maybe she did. At the mental hospital where she was brought squirming, kicking, and weeping in a straitjacket, she refused to cooperate with any of the doctors. And while she was there for three days, she would literally scream out, look at here, he's the crazy one, not me. When Betty was released from the mental institution, there was a divorce hearing set for July 16th. But Betty didn't show up. She was just mentally exhausted at this point, and she ended up firing her lawyer. But with Betty not showing up, this meant that Dan basically got everything that he wanted in court. He got full custody of the four children, and 
a reiteration of the restraining order against Betty, and a ban on visiting rights for Betty until she submitted to the psychiatric care. As for alimony support, he would continue to pay her what he had been paying her, which was $9,000 a month. Now, $9,000 a month, it does sound like a lot of money, and it absolutely is. But Dan was earning nearly $2 million a year. And as Betty continued her obscene behavior, like leaving those vile messages on their answering machine, Dan would begin to fine Betty. He would withhold $100 for every obscene word she used, $250 for each time she set foot on his property, $500 for every entry into his house. And Betty, well, she couldn't seem to control herself, so sometimes she was left with hardly anything at all to pay the bills. It was also reported that Betty at one point was sent a photo of Dan and Linda in the mail, along with a note that said, Eat your heart out, bitch. Now, it's never been confirmed if anyone actually sent the photo or if maybe Betty had sent them herself. She was really losing it at this time, so it's difficult to say. But we do know that in some instances, it does seem like Linda did really egg Betty on. For example, Betty had asked for her fine china that was given to her at a wedding to be returned to her, and even though Linda had purchased china of her own, she refused to give Betty back her china. Now, this clearly seems like a very trivial thing, but this would have been another slight at Betty and something that, I don't know, maybe Linda could have done to extend an olive branch and decided just not to. The long, drawn-out Broderick divorce was finalized in 1984, four years after Dan filed for it, and it did not go well for Betty. At the divorce trial, Betty represented herself without an attorney, and Dan used his legal knowledge to really screw Betty over. In the end, Dan Broderick, multi-millionaire and the father of Betty's four children, was ordered to pay his wife of 20 years less than $30,000 in cash. Again, that might seem like a lot, but you have to think back of all the years where Betty worked tirelessly job after job while taking care of the children so that Dan could go to school and he now that he had graduated and gotten a great job, he was making over $2 million a year. So after all of that, after all of the equity was divided and all of the debt settled, for him to pay less than $30,000 in cash, that was almost a slap in the face. Additionally, Dan was re-awarded custody of the children. Betty had lost in so many ways. She lost her husband to Linda she lost her children, she lost her dream home and her dream life that she had worked so hard for, that she had dreamed of forever. And before any of you start saying I'm being too nice to Betty, trust me, I am not pro-Betty, because there is absolutely nothing that can excuse her vile behavior during the separation and divorce, and especially what was to come. I just want to allow everyone to have a glimpse into her frame of mind. I don't think Dan and Linda are completely innocent here during the divorce proceedings, but they absolutely did not deserve what happened to them. Let me be clear on that. Now, with his divorce from Betty finalized, Dan proposed to Linda in June of 1988. 
The couple married on their front lawn yard on April 22nd, 1989, which was 10 days after what would have been Dan and Betty's 20th anniversary. I have no idea if Dan actually considered this, but I'm sure that Betty thought of it. Dan hired armed undercover security guards to secure the wedding. He thought Betty might actually snap enough to do something horrific at his wedding. Linda even asked him to wear a bulletproof vest, but Dan refused. He believed that because he was paying all of Betty's expenses, Betty wouldn't actually go as far as to murder him. After the wedding... Betty claimed that Linda continued to taunt her by sending facial cream and slimming treatment ads by mail. Again, we can't confirm if Linda really did any of this or if it was Betty doing it to herself. One month before Dan was to marry Linda, claiming that she needed protection, I mean, she was now living alone as a single woman, Betty had bought a Smith & Wesson revolver. And she actually took shooting lessons. By some accounts, she carried a gun with her most of the time. This doesn't really pair well with the fact that she often made threats that she was going to shoot Dan. Now, apparently Dan wasn't the only one who moved on. Betty was also dating a younger man by the name of Bradley Wright, although Betty has denied it. The pair was supposedly together for a year during all of this tumultuous stuff, but Betty maintained that she was all alone during this time. It seems like she has held on to this lonely woman card for a long time, and she's refused to give it up. When asked about Brad, her boyfriend, she said... I'm not the kind of person to be with someone and not be married. I never brought Brad anywhere as my date because he was too young. I didn't want to be the other half of the midlife joke. When asked why he often slept over, she answered, It was like having a dog, but he was house trained. That's kind of what she thought of this poor Brad character. (sighs) In November of 1989, four days before Betty's 42nd birthday, Dan had threatened to file criminal contempt charges over Betty's continued answering machine messages. Some believe that this might have been the final act that made Betty snap. On the morning of November 5th, 1989, Betty left her two boys, whom she was watching that weekend as they slept on the hall, and she drove to Dan and Linda's home in San Diego. She used keys that belonged to her daughter, and she entered the house and proceeded to the bedroom where Dan and Linda were still in bed. Betty then fired five bullets from her revolver. One bullet hit a bedside table. Another pounded into the wall, but three bullets struck the sleeping couple. One pierced Linda's neck and lodged into her brain. Another hit her in the chest, and a third perforated Dan's back, fracturing a rib and tearing through his right lung. Linda died instantly. Dan lived for a little bit longer. Betty later said in an interview that after she'd shot Dan, he had said, Okay, okay, you got me. She also stated, He was on the floor and the phone was right next to him. I thought, oh my god, he's going to be on that phone before I'm down the stairs. So, Betty pulled the phone cord out of the wall before leaving him to die. She left the house and called her daughter, Lee, to come pick her up. 
Later that evening, she decided to turn herself in to police. She never denied that she had pulled the trigger five times, but she did say that she never planned to kill Dan and Linda. She said she went to the house, walked into their bedroom because she wanted to confront them about the ongoing legal troubles, after which she actually intended to commit suicide. But she was startled by Linda screaming, call the police, and she fired the gun, which, okay, makes not a whole lot of sense, but, but okay, Betty. When all of this hit the news, Betty Broderick became a media sensation almost overnight. Her story about how her husband took the kids away and ran off with a younger woman caught the attention of everyone everywhere. She almost became a hero to women who felt like they could resonate with how she felt. Women who had been betrayed by their own spouses. Soon after her story hit the news, hundreds of people, most of them women, wrote to Betty and to local newspapers to say that while they didn't condone her murder, they understood how angry she was and why she did it. I believe every word Betty says because I've been there, one woman wrote. Lawyers and judges simply refuse to protect mothers against this type of legalized emotional terrorism. But Betty, it didn't really matter. She was charged with murder. The first proceedings ended in a mistrial in November 1990. Jurors couldn't decide between convicting her on murder or manslaughter, citing lack of intent, which is pretty crazy if you think about it, right? She walked into this home and shot two people dead in cold blood. But Betty claimed to be a victim of abuse and the public was mostly sympathetic. She said that she was a battered wife, claiming that she was driven over the edge by years of psychological, physical, and mental abuse at the hands of her ex-husband. And the prosecution? Well, they said none of that was true. They painted her to be an absolute narcissist and a cold-blooded killer. Clearly, the jury in this first trial couldn't decide. Her children also testified against her, and what they said completely contradicted this image that she had wanted as the perfect mother. At her preliminary hearing, her daughter Kim testified that her mother's cruelty was frequently aimed at her own children. Often, Kim testified, Betty told them that she hated them. She often had violent outbursts that were not always directed at Dan. She was known to throw things at the heads of her children, and she chased one of the children with a broken fly swatter, hitting them. Betty was not the doting mother she believed herself to be or that she painted herself to be, and her own children would show that in court. But again, it was a mistrial, so Betty was retried a year later with the same defense attorney and prosecutor. The second trial was essentially a replay of the first trial, but the second time around, the jury returned a verdict of two counts of second-degree murder. Betty Broderick was sentenced to two consecutive terms of 15 years to life plus two years for illegal use of a firearm under the maximum under the law, 32 years. Betty became eligible for parole in 2010, but this was not approved. At the time, one parole commission told her, your heart is still bitter and you are still angry. Betty was once again refused parole in 2017. 
After this, she wrote, I have met all criteria for parole and my release date was 2010. Now I am only a political prisoner. They have no reason to deny my parole. Betty's next parole review is due in 2032, though she may be eligible for an earlier hearing if she meets requirements, like if she's, I don't know, demonstrating good behavior. Today, her four children are divided when it comes to the matter of parole. They've all moved on with their lives, but they still have mixed feelings about their mother. In the 30 years since the double murder, daughter Kim has repeatedly denied requests made by her mom for a letter supporting her release from prison, but she has gone to visit Betty behind bars. In 2010 and 2017, her second daughter Lee and her youngest son Rhett both advocated for her release. She should be able to live her life outside prison walls, Lee told the board in 2010, suggesting that Betty move in with her. Lee had a notably troubled relationship with her father at the time of his death. This was due to an alleged drug problem. And Dan, he had amended his will shortly before the murder to exclude Lee from inheriting any money or belongings. So the two were sort of not in a good place when he was murdered. As for the Brodrick's first son and third child, Daniel Jr., he sided with his sister Kim. He's now a married father of three and noted that his mother is still hung up on justifying what she did. If you've seen any of her interviews, you will see that Betty has absolutely no remorse. She almost appears to be at total ease with what she did, even though it is now her children who have had to suffer both the loss of their father and their mother. I want to finish the episode off with a Betty Broderick quote on how she has warned her daughters never to depend on men. It goes like this. That makes me so sad because I really believe in my little fairy tale. I would love them to find husbands to provide for them, but I can't tell my daughters to buy into that anymore. It's too dangerous. Look at what happened. So what do you think about Betty and what she did? Have you seen the movies or Dirty John 2? I would love to hear what you think. I'd like to once again thank tonight's sponsor, Dorsey Health. Visit DorseyHealth.com and use code NAPPER at checkout for 15% off your purchase for the next 14 days. Get a premium CBD product without the premium pricing from other brands at DorseyHealth.com. As for me, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper or I'm on YouTube. Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. And if you're watching on YouTube, make sure you give me a like and subscribe. Until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye. I'm Dean. I'm the dad. I'm Laura. I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn. I'm the daughter. And together we are... Family Plot! The Family Plot Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore, true crime, and the paranormal. Minus all the oogie bits. We are PG-13. I'm almost 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial. Do catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy tales. Sherlock Holmes. And the trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. 
find out who Dad Man Crush is. Or what happens in Krista's corner. But behave you two! So come be a part of the fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!